the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into hour three of our daily three-hour tour. It is a privilege and honor to bring on um, an old friend. We've known each other about a decade, I think, uh, Matthew Continetti. You've heard me mention him and his brand spanking new book. It's a fabulous book. It's titled The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. It's not a lot of books about our movement that teach me uh, things and that are really fun. Also, this is both. Matthew Continetti, congratulations on this. Well done. What a great book. Well, thank you very much, Seth, and thank you for having me on your program. Of course, sir. Of course. Um, I guess the first thing I uh, I wanted to ask you about this book is well, I got to tell you, Matt. Um, I carry. I have been carrying it around. I got a pre uh, a pre publication copy. I've been carrying it around for two weeks. I'm told. In somewhere like 1986 or so, Harry Jaffa, who you write about, uh, my teacher, uh, was carrying around Hadley Ark's book, First Things, for about two weeks. I've been doing the same with yours. I just love it. I'm taking it everywhere I go, and I'm getting nuggets. You must have had fun. That was the question I wanted to ask. You must have had fun doing the research for this book, this history of the conservative movement, yeah? Well, it took a long time. I've been working on this project uh, really for about six years seriously, and then even a few years before that. I have a hobby, Seth. I, I like old journalism. Yep. And so this project really began with me going through the archives of the Weekly Standard magazine, where I used to work, National Review, The American Spectator, The New Criterion, and on and on. And eventually, out of that hobby, um, I, I became interested in telling the story of the conservative movement in the whole and round, with uh, equal emphasis on the politics as well as the intellectual uh, side of things. When I first met you, you and I bonded over something I think is is accurate um, and true, which is you did something when you were an undergrad, you're a bit younger than me, that I did when I was an undergrad, which was spending a lot of time in the stacks at the library reading old issues of National Review and commentary as well. Like commentary taught me an awful lot from the 60s and 1970s. You, you must have done some of that too, huh? Well, I went to Columbia University uh, around the turn of the century, and uh, it makes me sound older than I am, but I'm getting pretty old. Um, and, uh, you know, Columbia made me a conservative, Seth, yeah. uh, not by reacting to the uh, liberal atmosphere as much as uh, Columbia made me read the great books of philosophy and literature, and it was through reading Plato and Aristotle and uh, the Federalist Papers and Adam Smith and Edmund Burke and others that... Um, by the end of my uh, sophomore year in college, I realized I was an American conservative. Yep. And so then uh, my interest in the history of this movement and its great thinkers and in the way it's interacted with politics uh, really took hold. And the um, outgrowth of that passion is uh, this book, The Right. 
We're talking to Matthew Continetti, his book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Matt, I give a um, – for whatever it's worth, uh, I, I, give, I end up giving a lot of talks on the modern conservative movement and that sort of thing. I tend to start it around the founding of National Review in the 1950s. You take it back further, about 100 years. Well, yes, 100 years. Where, where do you start it? Do you start it with uh, some of the reaction to Woodrow Wilson – how do you pinpoint the exact start of the modern conservative movement? I start it with Buckley. You start it where? Well, I begin in the 1920s. Yeah. And uh, the reason I do that is uh, the 1920s were the first decade where the Republican Party uh, rejected the philosophy of progressivism. Uh-huh. You know, prior to uh, Woodrow Wilson, progressivism was kind of in the air. Uh, both parties kind of lived and breathed it. But after Woodrow Wilson, after the experience in the Great War, the First World War, the Republican Party really defined itself against the progressive idea. And so Presidents uh, Warren Harding and then his successor, Calvin Coolidge, stood for what they called Americanism. But when you look at it, it really was the beginnings of the modern American right. And the reason I begin in the 1920s is I also wanted to give the reader a picture of what the world was like before the New Deal yep. and before World War II. Yep. And when you get that uh, sense of how things were, uh, the prehistory of the American right, if you will, you see that there are some parallels between that era and today. Huge. Huge. You do a great job with that, by the way. Um, If people – I mean, for what it's worth, I'll just say for people trying to understand the conservatism that some said was new over the last, I don't know, five, eight years – in our movement, uh, they will find the echoes uh, of it uh, back from where you were pinning the beginning of the modern conservative movement, the Hardings and the Coolidges. Fair enough, right? Oh, absolutely. And then carrying on through uh, in the 1930s. And uh, I write quite a bit in my book about uh, Senator Robert Taft. Yeah, I was going to talk of, about that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he's a forgotten figure today. Oh, mm-hmm. um, but his stance, uh, opposition to the New Deal and also opposition to American entry, in the Second World uh, War, um, does mirror some of the tendencies on today's American right. I want to come back to that point in a second, Matt. We're talking to Matt Continenti, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism is his brand-new book. I can't say enough good things about it. I want to come back to that point. Let me do one other author's question for you, Matt. Was there anyone whose works you read that gave you um, some kind of fresh insight or that you really enjoyed having discovered for the first time? There's a lot of authors in our constellation I haven't read. I mean, I don't know. Peter Virick might be one. Was, was there someone like that you just kind of glossed over until you started researching this book that you thought, oh, wow, this I'm, I'm sorry I hadn't read this sooner? Well, there's one writer named Bill Gavin, who was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon, uh-huh. uh, who wrote a book called um, Street Corner Conservatism, and um, talking about the type of conservatism um, that uh, the hard hats in the Nixon con- uh, coalition, the mm-hmm. kind of the working class uh, ethnic voters who made up a big bulk of the silent majority during the Nixon years, what they stood for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, learning about Bill Gavin it was very uh, interesting. I also uh, drew a lot of inspiration from a, a book uh, by a history professor named Alonzo Hamby, mm-hmm. who um, studies the presidency. Mm-hmm. And his book, Liberalism and Its Challengers, was a pretty good survey of kind of mid-20th century American presidents. And he kind of influenced me in the way that I uh, structured this book 
and the attention I paid uh, to the to the presidents. People like talking about presidents, yeah, and I like talking about presidents, and so I use the presidents as a way of getting into the intellectual and political debates of a given era. Yeah, yeah, you do. I noticed that by the time I closed the book, when I when I finished it, I thought that what well, I noticed that structure. Uh, we have a mutual friend, I think, in Tevi Troy, who wrote about intellectuals and the American presidency. And I was thinking, you know, this is kind of an interesting um, addition to that scholarship because you talked about the conservative influences and the conservatives who influenced so many Republican politicians, presidents, candidate for presidents. And, and I thought that was a really good way to do it. I mean, it was a really good way to narrow the lane and make it historically apprehensible. Yeah. Well, thank you. And. One of the reasons I took this approach, Seth, is because I wanted to show how the intellectuals related to larger political currents. What were they responding to? Uh, what were they advocating? Uh, did they have an, an influence over politicians uh, and mass movements, or were they uh, alienated and estranged from them? Mm-hmm. And when you look at this 100-year history, you find that um, – the conservative intellectuals uh, have not always been in sync That's right. with the conservative grassroots. That's uh, right. There have been times where they've been separated from even the, uh, the America itself, kind of estranged from American democracy. And so in telling the story, I wanted to provide a much more complicated picture uh, than the one you usually hear in accounts of American conservatism. One thing that I think it's fair to say is a common thread for these hundred years that you're uh, tracking, Matthew, is you obviously correct me any time I get anything wrong or I misread you. Um, one of the things I thought was an interesting common thread is one of those internal debates where the conservative movement has never really been united has been foreign policy. I mean, we have these debates all the time, particularly now with Russia. We could have done it, you know, with the Middle East or any other uh, excursions or incursions. That's been continual and constant from the beginning, hasn't it? How to exercise our influence and power. Abroad, it has. It has, but you know, during the Cold War uh, era, but really since the, between the end of World War II and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, there really was a consensus, I think, uh, within the conservative movement and much of the American right, which was anti-communist, and not just for containment of communism, but rollback of communism, yep. defeat of the Soviet Union. Yep. And uh, anti-communism was kind of the glue that held this conservative coalition together. And it was also a a point of connection between the right and uh, the American public, because the American public also took the external threat of the Soviet Union very seriously. Once the Soviet Union disappeared, those debates that you mentioned uh, about the appropriate role of the United States in the world, well, they came back with a vengeance. And so we've returned, as I say, uh, to uh, an earlier uh, American right, an American right uh, prior to the Cold War, um, in kind of some of our debates and some of the uh, arguments that are being made. we got to take a quick commercial break, Matt, but that's exactly, if I can, on the other side of this break, where I would like to pick up with you on the uh, consensus and issue of fighting communism that I think really began in earnest, obviously, in the 1950s for obvious reasons, and what that um, meant in the conservative movement and to the liberal movement in America, too, if we could talk a little bit about that. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Matthew Continetti. His book, Just Out, can't say enough about it. The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Matthew Continetti is our guest. He is the author of a brand new book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. On that anti-communism uh, issue, uh, Matt, you know, you talked about we've forgotten a little bit about Robert Taft, um, the anti-conservative, uh, anti-communism kind of not only united the right, but helped get us uh, get our movement in touch in better touch with where the American people were. You write a lot about Irving Kristol. And I have had, I guess, the pleasure as well as insight of rereading a lot of his stuff lately. I don't know why. It just seems really appropriate for the times, particularly I'm thinking of essays like When Virtue Loses All Her Loveliness and that sort of thing. He wrote a very important piece circa 1952 on civil disobedience and anti-communism. You know the piece well. And he was making the point about American liberalism Say what you want about Joseph McCarthy. The American people understood he was an anti-communist. They did not know that about the left or liberalism in America. That was an important, poignant, trenchant, and controversial point at the time. I think it would be true mutatis mutandis for a lot of issues today, too. Would you like to say something about that? Well, it was a very important uh, essay in uh, the history of um uh, liberal anti-communism. Yeah. At the time he wrote it, Irving Kristol was a uh, liberal Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, an anti-communist Democrat writing for Commentary magazine. And he was making the point that um, in their disgust at McCarthy, many liberal intellectuals were apologizing or making excuses for actual communists. Mm-hmm. And uh, that he also made a, a larger idea that um, for m- some liberals, uh, they viewed communists as kind of liberals in a hurry. You know, uh, liberal uh, communists had the same ends as liberals. They were just more extreme in their means. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the beginning, I think, of some fissures within the liberal uh, anti-communist community, which eventually would lead to the formation of the early neoconservatives, the first neoconservatives mm-hmm. in the late 1960s and early 70s. I also think it speaks to something which is a problem for every movement, which is the liberals uh, thought that they could have no enemies to their left. Mm-hmm. And so they were willing to apologize, excuse, um, and explain away um, some uh, you know, radical elements on the left. And that became a real problem for the Democratic Party mm-hmm. uh, in the years ahead, especially as the anti-war movement uh, in Viet- with Vietnam tore that party apart. Um, it's a danger, I think, um, to, uh, to become identified in the eyes of the American public with the most radical proponents of your views. I think Irving Kristol was kind of making that argument as well uh, in his essay. He was, and I think around the same time, so too, I was rereading Witness by Whitaker Chambers. Mm -hmm. So too was Whitaker Chambers making that point about why it was a a little stronger, and maybe you disagree with it, but his point was, I won't do it as well as he did, his point was if you want to understand the silence from so many Democrats – or liberals about communism or our campaign against it, it's because they recognize too much of it within themselves. That was an interesting point, too, wasn't it? I don't know if you think it's fair. Well, for someone like Whitaker Chambers, Seth, uh, as you know, and as I write in my book, uh, you know, he was an ex-communist himself. He was, in fact, involved in a communist spy ring in the United States. He came to prominence when he... uh, um, uh, testified uh, before the House Un-American Activities Committee that a, a fellow member of his spy ring was Alger Hiss, who was a very prominent 
uh, member of uh, the government and of liberal uh, intellectual circles, um, uh, Chambers kind of converted from communism to a deep spiritual uh, Christianity. Mm-hmm. And he, he recognized in communism everything opposed to the religious worldview. Yeah. And, and so if you read Witness, his autobiography, which is just an amazing book and which became very influential uh, in the conservative movement for decades, uh, you see that, that communism represented uh, for him the end point of uh, modern life, um, but also an exceptional threat that needed to, uh, to be defeated. You know, Chambers thought he was on the losing side right. when he left communism, right. um, but lucky for us, he turned out to be wrong. Matt, would you agree with this? I've been trying I've been thinking through this a bunch. Would you agree that as Whitaker Chambers was, as you just said, so influential to readers and intellectuals and, you know, even grassroots movement in the conservative movement after he published Witness, after he testified against Alger Hiss, would you agree as influential as he was to the right? Joe McCarthy loomed so large into the 60s, even the 1970s, in the heads and in the minds of the left and the liberal Democrats. I I was shocked in reading some history separate from your great book, how much McCarthyism still was a specter in the liberal mind and in the liberal pen for decades beyond. Well, I think I think uh, Joe McCarthy continues to to okay. loom large in, okay. in, in liberal imagination. Okay. Okay. But you know, he was extremely important in the formation of the modern conservative movement. One of the things I discuss at length in my book is that uh, many of the founding editors of National Review, uh, many of those early uh, conservative activists, were strong supporters of Senator McCarthy, um, including William F. Buckley Jr., yep. the founder of the conservative movement. It wasn't until decades later that Buckley would say that McCarthy had ill-served the anti-communist cause. McCarthy really um, was one of the early figures to identify a split between liberal elites Mm -hmm. and the uh, sentiments of the larger public when it came to the issue of communist infiltration uh, in um, America's institutions. And... um, he 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 manipulated that issue so well and garnered such strength from it mm-hmm. um, that it wasn't until a Republican president Dwight Eisenhower, who saw McCarthy kind of stepping on his toes uh, in his challenges to the executive branch, um, very subtly and cleverly cleverly I think uh, engineered McCarthy's downfall. But so McCarthy was important for both the liberals and the conservatives. Matt, we. Um I, we, we're going to let you go soon because I know you have to rush. I, I think we can get you uh, one more segment in uh, after the next uh, co- upcoming commercial break. But I want to I want to pose this question to you as we go to break, because I think it's a tough question. And I've been wrestling with it in my mind. Y- you having written this book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. You obviously you write, you think, you say that, you know, we are a movement of ideas. Um, We are a movement of deep political philosophy, whatever anyone else wants to say we are. Just read your book, read the books you cite, the authors you cite, the kind of stuff we talk about on this show. On the other side of this break, might you address how a movement so dedicated to ideas, whether it's public philosophy or political philosophy, could get so wound up and caught up, particularly over the last five to six years, in personalities and how that 
divided the conservative movement, which purportedly is something about ideas. If that question makes sense, might you take a stab at that on the other side of this break real quick? Sure. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Matthew Continetti. His book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Matthew Continetti is our guest. His brand new book, I can't say enough good things about it, is titled The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. You see a picture of Ronald Reagan on um, prominently on the front cover. Matt, a movement about ideas, so committed to ideas uh, from on high even to, you know, people who loved the political philosophy of great thinkers who aren't necessarily intellectuals themselves but admired intellectuals. Bill Buckley is a good example of a tremendous intellectual that, you know, uh, non-intellectuals could love. And how does a how does a movement so dedicated to ideas become so uh, internecine fra- uh, fraught, so I- internally embattled over personalities as it seems to have been? Over the last several years, you may tell me it's not new, um, but it's a question I wanted to ask you. Well, I, uh, you know, one thing about being a movement of ideas is ideas change, mm-hmm. uh, Seth. Mm-hmm. And writing um, my book, I, I saw how uh, different elements of uh, conservatism or the right became dominant at different times. Mm-hmm. And there, I think, uh, was a changing nature of the of the right uh, over the last fifteen or so years, mm-hmm. with uh, rising populist uh, sentiment, uh, real outrage among uh, the public uh, at the way in which our elites were behaving and elites were not responding um, correctly or perceptively to the issues of the day, primarily um, the ongoing problems on the border, which mm-hmm. I. Identify really is starting in the second half of the Bush administration, George mm-hmm. W. Bush. Yeah, I remember it too. Um, around '06, somewhere around there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so that's been an ongoing process, and many people in Washington just didn't recognize it or didn't have uh, solutions to it that the public, that the conservative grassroots is willing to uh, entertain, to, uh, that thought they were serious. Some of the ideas that were important to conservatives for many years involved personality mm-hmm. and personal behavior. And um, when they saw uh, people not acting in the way that conservatives had counseled, uh, say, during the 80s and 90s, um, some conservative intellectuals kind of um, kind of threw up their hands. Yeah. And, um, and that led to splits in the movement. But I would say today, actually, the, the, the right is uh, more unified uh, than it's been in some time. Most of the dissidents um, have kind of either made a separate piece with the direction of the movement or they've left it altogether and the Republican Party. Um, people are very unified in knowing what they are against, yep. uh, against wokeness, against the Biden administration, um, against socialism, against the People's Republic of China. They're less unified on what to do about yeah, these problems. Right. And I think that's the big challenge uh, in, the, in the months and years ahead. Matthew Continetti has been our guest. His book is The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. About a minute or so left, Matt. Can I do a little special pleading? If, I'd have, if I've had one task of, with my radio show in Phoenix, it's been getting um, as many people as possible to buy the works of or read the works of uh, my teacher, Harry Jaffa. You spend some time on him. I'd love you to give your uh, the audience, if I can do the special pleading, um, a little sense of uh, what Harry Jaffa was to the conservative movement, what he brought to it. 
Well, uh, his book, Crisis of the House Divided, is one of the most important books uh, written uh, maybe ever uh, in its study of Lincoln. Wow. And especially when you look at the American right today, Jaffa's influence cannot be denied. Um, and even during his lifetime, I don't think he was quite appreciated. Um, and it wasn't at the center of the right. Uh, today, he, he is for sure. Well, I think that's right too, and 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 interestingly, you know, even some of the people he would uh, do pen bat- battle with. I mean, as I mentioned, Irving Kristol. I mean, some of these guys, it's worth rereading again. You know, they talk about eternal verities, and uh, it's just amazing how important their works, though they passed on, live on. Um, you'd agree with that, Matt. That's obviously why you wrote this book. One of many reasons. And why I'm a conservative. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. <laughs> I like old things. Uh, exactly. Yes, but not because they're old. Or <laughs> not because they're old. Because <laughs> they're right and they're true. Matthew Continetti, um, well done, sir. Congratulations. And let me just say uh, thank you. I mean, this is a very helpful book, a very important book for the movement in the country. Matthew Continetti has been our guest. The book is The Right the Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. Matt, I hope we can visit again soon. This was well done, sir. Thank you, Seth. Pleasure to be here. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Y Refi, our newest sponsor. I love these guys. I really do. Um, if you're looking for an investment, in a secure and collateralized portfolio where you can earn exceptional fixed returns and actually help other people. We're talking about people getting out of student loan debt and how you can make money helping them. You can do well by doing good. I take these endorsements for investments very seriously, and I know the good people at Y-Refi. They are good people. I would never, never endorse an investment unless I truly believed in it. So check them out, please. Go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com. They're a local company based here in Scottsdale. You can go visit them, and you won't get any kind of sales pitch. Why Refi is in the business of helping people that others won't. You can be, too. Should make you feel good. It does, doesn't it? Go to investyrefi.com or call them at 855 316 Eight, seven. Um, I hope you enjoyed that uh, interview with Matthew Continetti. Um, he is, you know, there's different people. I, I, I've known him for years. He's he's a very talented writer, and um, and, uh, and and I just can't say enough about this book because it's a fascinating thing to think about when you hear people say, "I don't recognize the conservative movement or the Republican Party." of Donald Trump, what is unavoidable in reading Matt Continetti's book, what is unavoidable is that there are themes, there are points, there are political philosophies in the conservative movement that the Trump movement, whatever you want to call it, the MAGA movement, whatever you want to call it, America first, that, that tie back to the origins of the conservative movement in the 1920s, as Matt Continetti was describing and as he lays out very well in his book. Um, we tend to forget the presidency of Calvin Coolidge uh, or the thinkers uh, around him. Ronald Reagan had Calvin Coolidge's picture in his uh, Oval Office. 
Um, and to say he's silent, Callan didn't say much is to diminish him, I think, too much. His speeches are amazing and his policies equally so. You can get from Continetti, you can read this in some of the works of Charles Kessler at the Claremont Institute. But if you're looking uh, for whence the conservatism in the MAGA movement has its origins, they weren't born in 2015. They weren't born in 2010 or 2000. They were born in the 1920s and the scholarship of conservatism that came about then. That's the first thing I, I, I thought was really interesting and really beneficial uh, about this book in highlighting it. The other thing, yeah, I was looking over some of the stuff I was discussing with Matt during the break, the Irving Crystal piece on anti-communism, as well as how Whitaker Chambers put it. Let me let me give them to you. Uh, these were the writers of the 50s that we looked to, even though, interestingly enough, as Matt reminds, um, Crystal and Chambers came from the left. Crystal came from the left of the Democratic Party. Chambers came from literal communism. And uh, they both turned on it so hard and heavy with their scholarship that, you know, these converts helped create a movement. And you think about the leaders in our movement, um, historical or present, some of them were, you know, born conservative, born Republican, Republicans their whole lives. Some of them converted. And I think it's that conversion story. Next time I have Matt on, I want to talk to him about because I think obviously that's where the growth is. But it's also curious to me as to why these converts were so incisive and so helpful to our movement. Were they more helpful to someone than someone like William Buckley who never converted over? No. No. I mean, Buckley Buckley was the engine that drove this thing uh, to success. Uh, but it would be unfair to say Buckley didn't change his mind about a few things, which he did. Um, he changed his mind on several things. In fact, uh, one would have been uh, one thing he changed his mind on was uh, federal law and civil rights. Uh, one thing he changed his mind on was American foreign policy uh, towards uh, the Middle East, particularly with respect to Israel. But in any event, here's what Irving Kristol said about his movement at the time, while still a liberal and McCarthyism, he wrote, perhaps it is a calamitous error to believe that because a vulgar demagogue, he's talking about McCarthy, perhaps it is a calamitous error to believe that because a vulgar demagogue lashes out at both communism and liberalism as identical, it is necessary to protect communism in order to defend liberalism. This way of putting the matter will surely shock liberals who are convinced that it is only they who truly understand communism and who thoughtfully oppose it. They are nonetheless mistaken, and it is a mistake on which McCarthyism waxes fat. For there is one thing that the American people know about Senator McCarthy. He, like them, is unequivocally anti-communist. About the spokesman for American liberalism, they feel they know no such thing. And with some justification. That was Irving Crystal. I also mentioned to Matt uh, Whitaker Chambers construction. I think it's a little more uh, it's a little sharper. It's a little sharper. Um, he was answering the question as to why more Democrats didn't stand up against communism. He said it was not treason. Men who sincerely abhorred the word communism and the support of common ends found that they were unable to distinguish communists from themselves for men who could not see that what they firmly believed was liberalism added up to socialism 
could scarcely, could scarcely be expected to see what added up to communism. Any charge of communism enraged them precisely because they could not grasp the differences between themselves and those against whom it was made. You see echoes of that now. I'd like to get those echoes louder because I think today's American liberalism and today's American left is wholly um, avoiding and maybe a little bit ignorant about what it is they stand for today, because it does have roots in something a bit far back and a lot more noxious than something called the Democratic Party. That it can be found in a lot of places throughout Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Thanks for spending some of your uh, afternoon with us. I hope you enjoyed this last hour, a little uh, trip down philosophical, political philosophy lane. By the way, I should say portions of this show are brought to you by the good people of Balance of Nature. I take their fruits and veggies every day, and it's just one daily dose. You just take it once a day. You can always take more because it's just fruits and veggies. If you want the extra pickup, usually I'm, I'm good to go with one. It's the equivalent of 10 Full servings of fruits and vegetables in one daily dose. Check out their fruits and veggies at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Let me close with some words from Harry Jaffa writing in 1965. In today's political vocabulary, conservatism is contrasted with liberalism and radicalism. In this strange world, however, I cannot imagine liberalism or radicalism searching for meaning the way conservatism searches for meaning. Liberalism and radicalism are confident of their meaning, and the world is confident of their confidence. Yet once upon a time, a liberal was thought to be more diffident, more open. He was someone who recognized the fallibility of human reason and its susceptibility to the power of the passions. He tended, therefore, to be tolerant of human differences. A liberal regime was one in in one in which such differences were, in a sense, institutionalized. James Madison's extended republic embracing a multiplicity of factions in which no faction might become a majority or impose its will upon a majority is the classic instance in the modern world of such a regime. But the new liberal is committed to policies which tend not to recognize propriety of differences but a certainty as to what is beneficial and it will brook no dissent. Boy, that was 1965 Harry was writing that. It is so much more the worse today. That's why it's worth reading these guys of yore, these giant oaks of yesteryear. It really is worth it because they're explaining that which a lot of us need to understand, a lot of which we have forgotten, and a lot of which we will need to regrasp and remember. Good word that, remember if we're going to succeed. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.